0: Okay, so we're ready to go again. Homework one due today. If you have it now, I'll take it after class. Don't turn it in right now. Wait till after class or between class and lab, and I'll take it. Or if you haven't finished, if you're still working on it, if you have questions to go over, you know, you can email it to me. As long as I get it before the end of the day today, I still accept it. Quiz one is up there, and I did not, I forgot to check your class. I don't know if anybody's taken it here yet. I did check the other class. But that's available through Sunday and I've covered about 95% of the material. There's only about three or four slides left for chapter one, so we're almost done with chapter one. And then we'll head on to chapter two for most of the day today. But that is available through Sunday, so make sure you go in and take that. Um, Exam one, Chapters zero through two for this class is the 9th of September and The way I'm seeing it right now, we should make it through all those chapters. Because we are almost completely done with chapter 1, so I'll be well into chapter 2 today and then be able to finish that up on Wednesday. So you should be set for having chapter 0 through 2 exam complete. And it will be on Friday regardless. If I don't quite make it through all of chapter 2, I will just cut that part off of the exam. So you won't, I won't test you on the material I haven't covered yet. But I'm looking right now, you know, Barring a snow day on Wednesday, or a water main break, or all those wonderful things that happen around here, you know, you never know. You know, or just no water, in the, no water pressure in the building. You know, who knows? But barring that, we should be on, we're online for the correct to hit the correct exam, a correct date time for the exam, and then although what i might do that day try to think of how to do that the best cuz you won't need the whole you don't need 2 hours for the exam it'll be a 1 hour exam so i'm probably going to do the lab the first hour that way you can take your exam the second hour and when you're done you can just leave i mean you don't have to hang around here so we'll do the lab first when you're done with the lab then you can take the exam done with the exam you know you're done instead of making you take the exam and a lot of people will finish mine in you know 25, 30 minutes, and I don't want to, then you've got to come, wait a half an hour, come back for lab. Seems a little silly, so I'll do it, we'll do, we'll do the class the other way around that day. I'll just come in, we'll do the lab. Of course, if you have questions for the exam, you're welcome to ask me first. You know, I'll be happy to go over anything that you have a concern about. I'll be, you know, just ask me. I'll be more than happy to go over it before that. But then we'll do the lab, then we'll do the exam, and that way you're done. If you have another class after this, then you still have to wait, but I can't. I can't do much about that, but if you're done, if this is the only class you got, you can be gone. So, And it's a Friday too, so hopefully you don't have anything else. Okay, And then homework two. And this class did get homework two. I mentioned to some of them my homework. My previous class, I ended up trying to give them the same homework twice in a row. And luckily I caught it before I handed it out, because otherwise they would have said, this is fine, we'll just take the one you give us back and fix it and turn it in again, right? There you go. So I do have homework two for you. And this is up on WebCT again if you lose it. You go, sir. Two and three. One, two, and three. There you go. And this is due again, two weeks. You got till September 16th to do it. And this is going to be on chapters three and four. So although it's not due till the 16th, I will have covered chapter. 3, or Chapter 2, sorry, Chapters 2 and 3. I'm going to get this, these two classes confused, I apologize. I'm going to get through Chapter 3 by Wednesday. Chapter 3 is on the exam, so you might want to go through the first five questions on here. Four or five? At least the first one, two, three, four questions on here. You might want to go through those before the exam, just to review them. So you might want to have answered one through four by next Friday. They're not due, I'm not checking you on them. but. Just as review for the exam, it would be useful, other than doing them the next week and saying, boy, I wish I'd done this before the exam. Because you may see questions similar or certainly similar topics coming up for the exam. All right. And then that's homework too. So that's what's coming up over the next couple of weeks. Questions on the assignments? No, no? Okay. Picture of the day today big blob in space, right? Looks like we assume it's in space, not necessarily know that except that it's the astronomy picture of the day I always put up there. And actually this is a picture taken with the Herschel, what do they call it, it's not Herschel Space Telescope, Herschel Space Observatory. So this is actually a telescope in space, sort of like the Hubble Space Telescope, but the Hubble Telescope is about 2.4 meters across. So that's a pretty good, that's, that's a pretty good, that's more than, more than I can stretch my arms across. You know, meters about three feet, a little more than three feet, so you're talking about six, seven, eight, almost eight feet across. So it's a pretty big telescope. This one's actually even bigger. This one is about 50% bigger. This is about three and a half meters across. So it's an even bigger telescope now that the European Space Agency has put up into space to observe. And differing from the Hubble Space Telescope, which looks at visible light, this looks at infrared light. So this is actually a picture in infrared light. So it's not what we'd see if we pointed a telescope at this part of the sky, or if we pointed the Hubble Space Telescope at this part of the sky. That's not what we'd see. This is where the infrared emission is. And when we look at infrared, which we'll talk about in a little bit, we're seeing cooler objects. So we are seeing much cooler objects shine in the infrared. and. Seen that with you know, night vision goggles, right? They see the infrared heat that your body gives off. So you can actually see. So here, you're not looking at bodies. You're looking at astronomical bodies. You're looking at stars. So you're actually seeing very, very young stars. You see some scattered in here, around, different clusters of them, groupings throughout here. You can see a little pockets. Those are what we call not actually stars, but protostars. So they're not really quite stars yet. In order to be a star, an object has to produce its own energy. So it has to be big enough that it's fusing hydrogen into helium in its core, like the sun does. So these aren't quite doing that yet. They're just still in the process of contracting to get up to those temperatures needed. And we'll talk about this all in, more, in great detail coming up in a few weeks. But when we look at them, they're shrouded by all this dust and gas. If we try to look at this in the visible, it's not visible. <coughs> Not visible in the visible, right? (laughs) Sounds good. It's not visible if we look in visible light. Why is it not visible? Because there's so much dust and gas, it's like trying to look through a brick wall. You don't see anything. It's like, essentially, there's a brick wall between us and that in the visible light. But in infrared, the infrared light can penetrate the dust better. So when we want to look at these stellar nurseries, we use infrared light. And we can and that actually we can see that coming from, we can see the infrared light coming from them. And it's sort of the same way that you can, you know, visible light's not getting through the walls. We have some windows here, but if we didn't have windows, you know, we get we getting no light from the outside. No visible light would get through. But radio waves still get through. The longer wavelengths can penetrate. And they go through. They They don't see that wall as a wall. They see it as nothing. It's not there. So those big long wavelengths just come right through. Same thing here, infrared and radio waves we can use to look deep down into these clusters and actually study how stars are forming. We can't do that with visible light. So that's our picture. Again, it's looking at star formation and we're going to come back in a couple of weeks. Couple of weeks, do this, then do telescopes and a few other little things. Talk about the planets a little bit and then we'll move on to stars and talk about how stars have formed. So probably by probably sometime early October we'll actually get to this and we'll go through the whole life cycle of a star. Questions, questions. Nope. I know. You're stuck with me for two hours today. So okay, let's see. We want to do from here. And this is what we were looking at last time. We were looking at I'd gone through I'd gone through this slide pretty well last time. We looked at the the objects actually orbit a common center of mass. So when we talk about the Earth orbiting the sun, it's not exactly right. The Earth and the sun orbit each other. The moon orbits the Earth? Well, not really. The moon and the Earth orbit each other. The problem is that to this scale, you know, you have one person, one, bigger, one big person that's gigantic, and you have one little teeny tiny person. Because compared to the sun, the Earth is not there. It's a little speck. You know, to, this, to the scale of this, you know, the Earth is here, you've got a little speck of dust, that's the Earth. So it's essentially nothing. So that orbit is actually very, very close to the center of the Sun. But actual truth, we're really everything is orbiting each other. So all the groups orbit together and when you have more than one planet, it gets a lot more complicated. This is easy to think about when you're talking about one, two sets of objects orbiting each other. But what about when you have the Earth and Jupiter both orbiting the Sun? Well then the orbits get even more complicated. Because not only does the sun, which is the strongest pull on Jupiter and Earth, but Jupiter pulls on the Earth. The Earth pulls on Jupiter. That changes things a little bit depending on where they are. Sometimes Jupiter is a little bit closer to Earth. Sometimes it's further away. When it's closer, it pulls a lot harder. When it's further away, it pulls a lot less. Now again, for the Earth, we're far enough away, and the sun is so much more massive than Jupiter, it doesn't make a big difference. For little things like comets, it does. So when a comet happens to pass close to Jupiter, it can change its orbit tremendously. So if it happens to pass close to Jupiter, or the Earth, or Saturn, or any of the other planets, it actually can change its orbit significantly. All So that's where we finished up last time. And then the last slide for the chapter, I didn't even, didn't even realize when I showed it to you, it's really the last slide before the review. So we were almost completely done with chapter one. But these are looking again, they're looking at Kepler's laws. Kepler's laws are really, Kepler did. The, Kepler figured out his laws by looking at data. So he looked at Tycho's data and his observations and made laws based on what he saw. There was no physical meaning to them. Any more than there was physical meaning that, you know, for epicycles. They were a device that worked to predict the positions of the planets. So we could use them to predict where the planets were going to be. Kepler's were the same way. He said the orbits were ellipses, but he didn't know why. I mean, he didn't know why they'd have to be ellipses. He just said this is what they are. Newton's law, Newton actually came through and Newton developed his whole science of physics and gravity and in order to do all these calculations, he actually had to invent a whole new branch of mathematics that everybody loves if you've gotten there, if you've taken calculus. That was invented by Newton. So he actually had to invent the whole In order to solve a problem in, in gravity, he had to develop calculus because there was no such thing as calculus. He had to develop that whole branch of mathematics in order to solve the problem. So in order to do all that, he could then predict based on his theory of gravity he could predict and say that all of kepler's laws followed directly from his theory of gravity so he verified that he gave a physical reason as to why kepler's laws actually occur so why do the planets move faster when they're closer to the sun again without gravity that doesn't mean anything why do they move faster then it doesn't you know if you think about gravity it makes sense but when you don't think about it in terms of gravity Does it really matter? Why should the planet move faster then? It doesn't matter. It could move faster over here or over there. You need that physical basis of gravity in order to be able to explain it. And he could also prove Kepler's third law, a cubed equals p squared, based on his. So he could actually take his equations and work with them. And he could actually prove that Kepler's third law comes out in much more detail. He could come up with it from his laws of gravity. So he was actually able to do things and give things a physical, a scientific basis that they did not have before. That they did not have on Kepler. Kepler's were all based just on observations. Here's what I see and here's what works. Kepler's law, for example, Kepler's third law worked for the solar system. So it worked for all the planets in the solar system. When Newton redid it, It came up with a much more complicated form. Not that a cubed equals p squared, which is relatively simple. But he came up with a much more complicated form with some big old constant in it. But it means that you could use his law to determine masses anywhere in the universe. So I could look at two stars orbiting each other and I can determine the mass of that system. I could look at stars orbiting a galaxy or galaxies orbiting each other and do the same kind of thing. If I can determine the orbits I can use Newton's version of Kepler's third law to determine masses. That's an important thing because it's not a very easy thing to determine the mass of something out in space. I mean if I'm just looking at the Sun, how massive is it? How do we determine how massive the Sun is? No, no You can't go take a big scale out there and weigh it. Plus the scale wouldn't work, right? Because the scale depends on the Earth and gravity. So you have to bring the Sun to the Earth and put it on the scale and that would give you its weight. Now you can determine the mass. Mass, is, of course, is different than weight. Mass is out there. But in terms of measuring it, you know, how are you going to do it out in space? How are you going to measure even the mass of the moon? This is our way of actually being able to determine masses. And we'll find that we'll come back to this when we talk about stars, when we talk about galaxies, that we actually come back to this type of method to actually determine masses. There's a few other things that we can use, too. But there's no, you know, no easy way. Just in astronomy, you're, all you can do is look. You, know, you can't, go, can't go touch the sun and see what it, what it is, or what it's made of. You have to. All you can do is use the light that's coming from it. And most of the pictures here I'm just showing you are kind of what I showed you before. But for a large planet, for example, and there's the sun, well, it might, the sun makes some little teeny tiny orbit within itself. But it is, there is actually an orbit there, something very small, but there is actually an orbit. So they orbit around a common focus. So the sun has an orbit, and the planet has an orbit. If you look at them as two much bigger objects, for example, if you had two stars orbiting each other that were about the same mass, like the sun, they both move very significantly. They both move just as much. As As one mass gets much larger than the other, so here they're the same, here this one is twice as big, here it's many times bigger, the orbit of the more massive objects just gets smaller. So that, that was the rest of Newton's laws that I wanted to cover. So are there any questions before I do the review, and then jump into chapter two so we can have everything ready for the exam? OK. So just as a summary, and again, this is everything we've covered over in this chapter. The first models of the solar system were geocentric. They could explain retrograde motion, but not easily. So we could go through and say, you know, we can predict the positions of the planets, based on this model. The Earth's at the center, and Mars moves around it, but it doesn't move around it in a circle. It moves around it in 10 circles on top of circles. But we can, still the, we can still predict the position. That was the important thing that they cared about. You know, It didn't have to be the exact right model. It didn't have to be the way things were, but it worked to predict the positions. The problem was, as we got more and more good measurements, as the equipment got better then it was very hard, it got, this, it got more and more complicated. And you couldn't just throw a few more lines of code into your computer program, you needed a few more mathematicians working to do all the calculations you needed to predict where Mars was going to be, you know, one year from now. And then when you found out it was different, then you had to go back and add more circles. So it got very complicated, and it couldn't very easily explain retrograde motion. The heliocentric model explains retrograde motion intuitively we're passing the other planet. So if we're passing it, it looks like it's going backwards for a short time. As I said, passing a car on the highway is a similar kind of thing. Galileo's observations that we looked at, I gave you four of them on the screen and I added two more, so there were like six of them that I gave you, supported the heliocentric model, but especially two of them. You know, all, Some of the others were good, were you know, nice evidence, but weren't any proof of a heliocentric model. The moons of Jupiter were one that was very important because it was actually something orbiting an object other than the Earth. It was the first observations of something orbiting not the Earth. So that was supported the heliocentric model. Again, it didn't, that even didn't even prove it, because you could still have the moons orbiting Jupiter and this everything, the sun and everything else orbiting the Earth. So it didn't really prove anything. But it was the first one that was a very definite observation of something, that, some, that not everything in the universe had to orbit the Earth. So that was why that was important. Venus was even more important. The phases of Venus could not occur under the models we had to explain the motion of the planets. You, would, you should not be able to see a complete cycle of the phases of Venus. And Galileo did. He observed Venus as everything from a very thin crescent to a new phase to a full phase. If you were using just the geocentric models that could explain the planetary motion, they predicted that Venus should never appear as anything more than a crescent. So you shouldn't be able to see a full phase of Venus or a gibbous phase of Venus. You should not be able to see those, but you did. So that was sort of the proof. That one observation was the big one that affected Galileo. There are the other ones. You know, they they helped, they lent support, but they did they weren't proof. That one was the one that was proof. And then from those observations that Tycho made, talked about Tycho making all those detailed observations, Kepler found three laws of planetary motion. So he determined the three laws of planetary motion from the observations. So he based them on observations that he made. So observations that Tycho made. So he took all those and he said, you know, I don't know why. But the planets orbit in ellipses. I don't know why, but the planets move faster when they're closer to the sun. And I don't know why, but the square, the cube of, the square of the period is, is proportional to the cube of the semi-major axis, a cubed equals p squared. He didn't know why, but they were, he found them to be true for all the things that he observed. Then finally, Kepler's theories were explained by Newton. So when we go through Newton and Newton's law of gravity, and calculus, and all the de- big details there that Newton developed, then he was able to explain exactly why. You know, If Newton had come earlier, he could have been able to predict. He could have made the pre- come and made the prediction that said, you know, OK, the planet should be doing this. You know, My law of gravity predicts that, you know, that this will occur, and then we could have observed it. It came in the other direction. He based his stuff on the observations, but then was able to go back and prove them. And then finally, the last, th- the last thing there, the gravitational force between two masses, that's just that Newton's law of gravity that I wrote up for you last time. Gm1. So if you want to write that, if, you're, if you like equations, you can write that as all those words you can write as one equation. So the force between any two objects is there's a constant. And there's the mass of one object, the mass of other object. So if we double the mass of an object, we double the force. If we take the distance between them and we double the distance between them, then the force is going to go down. You can think of this as r squared is r times r. So if you double r, you double this r and you double that r, and you would get four times. So if you double the distance, then the force would go down by a factor of four. It would decrease. So those are the kind of things that I'm looking for when we come up to the exam next time is that if I were to give you one and say that we change the mass by so much or we change the distance by so much, how is the force going to change? And again, I'm not going to give you really odd. You know. If we change the distance by 3.86 times and the mass is by, you know, I'm not giving you those kind of numbers. I'd like to give you twos and threes and things that are easy to calculate. I want to know that you know the concept. I'm not concerned that you can put the num- plug the numbers in use a calculator and plug the numbers in to get it if you know the idea there. So that's what the last part is there, is the gravitational force. So as I said, we were pretty close to the end of chapter one. Yay, two chapters down and a bunch more to go still. Well, it's hard to believe. We're two weeks through the course already, right? Okay. Chapter two, and that should be out there for you. I hope. I think I put that up on Wednesday. Okay. Slide show. And now we jump in, and we're going to get close. We're going to come close to the topic for our lab today. we're doing our, lo- our lab topic is going to be on light and matter, in a, on observing light. And so we're going to be a little bit ahead of it. We're going to do the lab a little bit ahead before I get to most of it, most likely, as things normally will go here. But light and matter. Light is how we observe everything in astronomy. We have to depend on what we can see. We can't go out and experiment. So we can see this beautiful cloud of gas out there, but I can't go out and say, well, what happens if I put a brighter star in there? If I take this star out and put a brighter star there, what happens to the nebula? If I take it out and put the fainter you, you, you can't go do that in astronomy, right? You know, In chemistry, I can mix different chemicals. and I say, well, what if I mix a little bit more? Or what if I put this one in? You might blow something up, but you can at least go do it. In astronomy, all I can do is look at it. So I cannot. You you know, you have to make you make inferences based on what you see. You can't just go and experiment with it. You know, what if the central temperature of the sun were 20 million degrees instead of 15 million degrees? What would happen? I can't go turn up the temperature on the sun and do it. Might bake ourselves too at the same time, right? So I mean, there's a lot of things in astronomy that light is the only thing we have. I mean, except for a few things, like we've got moon rocks, right? We've been able to go to the moon and bring pieces back. We actually have, we have, sat, we have spacecraft that have gone to every planet in the solar system now. So since Pluto's no longer a planet and we haven't sent a spacecraft there, we've now visited every planet. So we've been able to look at those. But still, even then, what are we looking at? We're looking at just the light from them. We're still not seeing them. Mars we've landed on and been able to sample, Venus. But even most of the planets, you know, Jupiter. We've flown, flown around Jupiter. We've orbited Jupiter. We've sent a probe down into Jupiter. But really, all we can do is observe it. We can't change anything. So it makes astronomy different than a lot of other sciences in that you can't, you can't experiment on it. You, know, you can't take, in geology, you can take the rock, and you can analyze it, and you can do lots of stuff with it. We can do that with moon rocks now but in turn especially when you start when we start to the end of the class and we get out to stars and galaxies everything is based on just what we see so this is just the units of the chapter that we're going to go through we're going to talk about what we learn from the sky we're going to talk about waves we're going to talk about the electromagnetic spectrum so we actually see all ranges of electromagnetic of light and you know visible light is just a teeny tiny portion of that so that's what we've been, and that's what we've been confined to for you know many for most of human history in terms of astronomy has been visible light. That's all we've been able to observe. And there's a lot more out there that we can see and that we're starting to use, but only in the last 50, 60, 70, about 70 to 75 years now. So relatively recent, even by human timescales, you know. Spectroscopy, that's what we're doing today for lab. So We'll get to that for lab. I probably won't get through that by now, so you're going to get through the lab first, and then we'll go back and talk about it next time, which works, which works one way, too. You get to actually see the materials and do a little bit with it, and then come back to spectroscopy, the formation of spectral lines, and the Doppler effect. We've heard of the Doppler effect, right? Observed the Doppler effect? Most people have. You have, if you know it or not. You know, if you ever had a police car come by or an ambulance pass by you, you hear the siren coming towards you, really, really high-pitched. And then it slows down. And then as it goes away, it's slower pitched. That's the Doppler effect for sound. The Doppler effect for light does the same thing. It changes the wavelength of the light as objects are coming towards us or away from us. But it's the same thing. So I said something you're familiar with, maybe not by name, but you've, you've had the experience. You've seen that thing come towards you and get louder. And, or not, not louder. Higher pitched and lower pitched. We'll get louder, too, when it's getting closer to you. But that has nothing to do with the Doppler effect. All right. So first of all, what is electromagnetic radiation? Electromagnetic radiation is transporting energy through space. And it doesn't need any physical medium through which to travel. So electromagnetic radiation is different than sound radiation. If there were no atmosphere in this room, other than us all being dead immediately, if I could stand here, you wouldn't be able to hear me. I could talk, but there's no, no medium, no atmosphere, through which my, son, my voice would travel to you. Light, fortunately, doesn't need that to travel. Which is good, right? Otherwise, nothing would travel through the vacuum of space and the sky would be dark. So we wouldn't see any sunlight. We wouldn't see any, star, any starlight. It would be awful dark and cold. So in a way, it's a good thing that electromagnetic radiation can do that. The way it travels is through electric and magnetic fields varying, and that gets into a little more detail than we need to get through. But you get a changing electromagnetic field creates a changing electric field creates a magnetic field, and as that changes, it creates an electric field, and the thing kind of just propagates itself and travels through space. You don't need to worry about the details of that. One example is light. So here's a picture of a galaxy in visible light. If we were to take that same picture, and you'll notice that in your textbook and on the slides, it's got a little scale here on the bottom where it shows, and it'll show something highlighted in red. Red just means that picture is taken in visible light. So if it's a V, that means visible light. And we'll go through the rest of the spectral classification, but this is radio, infrared, ultraviolet, X-rays, and gamma rays. If we were to look at this same galaxy in the radio, it would look completely different it would not look like the same galaxy. In fact, it might not have any of the same shape. There are some galaxies where it looks like a galaxy like this, but when you look at it in the radio, it's got two big lobes going out this way. We're seeing completely different things. They're not visible in the visible. Not vis- I'm doing that, not visible in the visible today, am I? All right. But you don't see them in the visible, But you don't see- and you won't see this in the radio. You might see the very central part here, and the whole rest of the galaxy is not visible. And when you look in ultraviolet and infrared, and we'll look at some of that later, everything gives us a different view of the universe. This is all we had until the 1930s. So it's been you know, 75 years or so that radio telescopes were invented and radio receivers were invented to actually observe radio waves from the sky. So until the 1930s, everything we knew in astronomy was just on what we could see with visible light. That was it. And even then, for the next, for a big chunk after that, we added radio waves and radio astronomy became a very big thing. But we still, the rest of this spectrum was still closed to us. We couldn't observe X-rays or gamma rays from the sky. They don't come through the atmosphere. Good thing, right? We don't really want to get bombarded by X-rays and gamma rays from outer space. You know, they do bad. They they they're good in, in a medical sense when you're when they're controlled and they're taking a picture of your broken arm. But if they're just beaming down on you from space, it's kind of a good thing that our atmosphere blocks out all of these. Blocks out a lot of ultraviolet too. What gets through gets gets through does do bad things, right? The sun burns you. And infrared, we don't get a lot of infrared coming through either. So really, all we can see, and I'll come back to this in a little bit, is the visible and the radio from Earth. It took satellites to be able to observe all the rest of this. But let's go look at waves in more detail. So what is a wave? First question on your homework for the next one, huh? Transmission of energy without the physical transport of material. So when you, when you have the wave coming, the energy is being transported. You see the wave moving. And you could see this in an ocean or in a pool. If you watch the waves, the waves come to shore, right? But you might see uh, something bobbing out there, a ball. That Bob's out there, it doesn't move, right? And it's just it might slowly move in, but it doesn't come in with that wave. It doesn't have the wave picks it up and brings it in. So the wave is moving, but you're not physically transporting the material. It's not the water that's moving. The water is going up and down. The water isn't physically moving forward until you get to the wave break and it does come in. But out in out in the middle of the ocean, it's just the water bobbing up and down. So you're not physically transporting the material. The other example I give is if we turn on the gas, right? If I turn it on, you immediately hear the hiss. I'm not going to do it because we really don't want gas coming through the, through the classroom. But if you, you, immediately, you immediately hear it. So that's the sound wave coming to you. It takes a while to smell it. And those up here are going to smell it first. It takes a longer time for that gas to propagate through the room. The wave goes very quickly and you'll all hear it almost instantaneously if I were to turn that on. But the actual smell, the actual material to transport itself takes much longer. And that's what we mean by wave motion. And we get different kinds. We have sound waves. Sound waves do need something to travel through. So when you watch those science fiction movies and there's a big explosion and you hear it, you shouldn't. You know, if you're out in the middle of space and the spaceship blows up, you should hear nothing. Should be dead silence. Maybe a big light explosion, but nothing, no no noise. Because there's no way for that material to travel, for that sound to travel through space. It can't travel through empty space. Light can. Now when we look at a wave, and this can be any kind of wave. This can be a light wave. This can be a sound wave. It can be a water wave. All the the components are the same. So you have the crest as the top, as the highest point of the wave. The trough is the lowest point of the wave. So those are the highest and lowest point of the waves, And then sort of in the middle is where it would be if there were no wave. We call that the undisturbed. So if you're taking a string and shaking it back and forth, and watching it vibrate, watching it form a wave, where it would land, where it would be if you were not shaking it would be the undisturbed state. And then the parts of the wave, the things we measure, are the amplitude. Which is the height of the wave from the undisturbed state that's how we measure them so you don't measure it from top to bottom you measure it from where it should be to the top so that would be the amplitude of the wave and that can have all different values depending on what kind of wave you're looking at you know what water waves can be very small a few inches they can be many feet they can be many meters depending on how big of a wave you're getting But that's the amplitude. That's how strong the wave is. The higher the amplitude, the stronger it is. So if you're, you know, if you're out, if you're out in the ocean, you know, the bigger wave comes and it gives, you, it pushes you more, right? Gives you a bigger whack. The wavelength is the other measure. The wavelength is just the time between the peaks, or the length distance between the peaks. So if you have the wave there. And you measure the distance between the peaks, it could be, you know, five feet, if you're looking at a water wave. Maybe there's five feet between each wave. Maybe there's 50 feet. Maybe they're not as, coming as quickly. Maybe there's only two feet. they're coming faster and faster. That's just how quick the waves come. So one tell, the crest tells you how big and how strong the wave is. The wavelength is telling you how fast the waves are coming. So we have a couple different terms there, and I've got a couple more to give you. So those are a few of them, but a couple more for your first question. But as this comes through, those are for, in, say for any kind of wave, those are the same terminology. So we can use wavelength and crest and trough for water waves, we can use them for um, light waves, radio waves, anything else. So here's the example. And I sort of explained this to you already. The waves can transmit energy. So when you throw a rock into the pond there, You'll see that stick bob up and down. It doesn't go anyplace. It might slowly move outward from it. but not, necessar- not necessarily. And not very quickly, not near as fast as the waves do. So you'll see it bob up and down in the waves, but the waves are transporting energy, or what is transporting the energy. So as you watch these different points, if you look here, I mean, the waves, like the water waves, the water is just bobbing up and down. So it's not physically water moving in a wave. It is the transport of the energy. So it would stay, if you were staying nice and even here, you know, here's before you threw the rock in. No wind, nice, nice calm pond. One, two, three, four, and five. We got five points on the wave. As we go in and we start the waves, and you might have one of them might be up, one middle, one down, and it will just slowly change. This one's up, now this one's up and then this one. So they will go through from 1 to 2 to 3, and it will just keep oscillating through. So it's transporting energy, but you see that what was at this location didn't go anyplace. So it didn't move further along. It stayed exactly where it is. It's the wave that actually travels. The example I gave you of the sound waves traveling if I were to turn on the gas. The sound waves travel through very, very quickly. It takes a much, much longer time for the actual material to transport. Now the other ones that we get, we talked about wavelength and we talked about the amplitude related to the wavelength are the frequency and the period. Frequency is how many waves pass a point. So if you're standing here looking and you can watch those water waves coming and you can count, you know, you can wait 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 5 wait wait 1 second and have 3 waves come by you. Then you have 3 waves per second would be your frequency. If you see only one wave every other second, then you'd have half of a wave per second. So it's how many waves pass a given point every second. If it takes 10 seconds between waves, then you'd have 1 tenth of a wave per second. And that would be your frequency. It says how many waves pass you every single second. The period is inverse to that. The period is the time between the successive passages. So that if we have waves that are coming every 10 seconds, the period is then 10 seconds, right? There's one crest now, 10 seconds later, you get another crest coming. The frequency would then be 1 tenth of a wave per second. So they're inversely. If that's 10, the other is 1 tenth. If you have you know, the time between, between passage of successive waves is a tenth of a second. So they're coming really quick. Then how many are you getting each second? Ten. ten. So your frequency would then be ten waves per second. So frequency would be ten waves per second. Period would be a tenth of a second. There are always inversely relationships. So the period is one divided by the frequency. The frequency is one divided by the period. If you know one, you can figure out the other. And then up to the frequencies. So those are the ones we wanted to cover. And then wavelength, again, we already did. Wavelength is the distance between successive crests. We talked about that one already. Velocity is the speed. How fast are the crests moving? So it's the speed at which they're moving. And we have a relationship here. The velocity is the wavelength divided by the period. Now, the nice thing in astronomy, when we're looking at light, is that we always know the velocity. Because the velocity is always the same. The velocity in astronomy for, for electromagnetic waves, then the velocity is equal to what we call c, the speed of light. and we call it the speed of light but it is actually the speed of electromagnetic radiation so any object any electromagnetic wave travels at this speed which is very close to 300,000 kilometers every second so pretty fast takes about a takes what, about a second to get less than a second to get to the moon be a pretty quick trip right it takes about eight minutes to get to the sun. But any velocity that we use in astronomy, if we talk about light waves, radio waves, infrared, gamma rays, x-rays, anything, they all travel at the same speed, 300,000 kilometers per second. So we always know what the velocity is. So then we can figure out the rest of the relationship. And that gives us the, you can figure out, wa- you can figure out wavelengths, you can figure out periods if you need to figure them out. But for astronomy, everything is all everything moves at the speed of light. Now that doesn't work for on Earth, because water waves don't always go at the same speed. Sound waves don't always go at the same speed. There's a speed of sound, but it depends much. It depends on the density of the atmosphere, and it depends on a few other things as well. Now, if you hear, what is it? if you if you do sound through, what do you, what do they do in the old movies where you put your ear down to hear something coming? because sound travels faster and better through like the railroad they'd listen to the railroad for the train coming because before you could hear anything coming you could hear it coming through it travels be focused through the through the pipes and it would also come faster so it would get there first because it's because those steel rails would be much denser than the air that they're traveling through so sound doesn't always work because it depends on what it's traveling through well so did these a little bit not near as much but you know light travels a little bit slower in the atmosphere than it does in space so this would be the speed of light in a vacuum it does travel a little bit slower but it doesn't have the big the big range of speed variations that for example sound or water waves do where you can get a very large difference between them okay so diffraction Diffraction, a couple, a couple a bunch of definitions for you really right here. A definition is the way a wave bends around something. Now if you've ever been out to the ocean, seen a breakwater to kind of block the waves. If you notice it doesn't doesn't do it perfectly, right? The waves come around the end. It does stop them coming straight through but everything kind of bends around it. And because of the properties of a wave when it's coming through here it doesn't just break it off and stop all waves. The waves kind of fan out into this area. So it certainly does. It helps. I'm not saying they're not a good thing. They certainly help break the waves coming directly into the shore there. But they won't stop it completely. Light does the same thing. Light is a wave. So light does the same thing in telescopes. And it bends, around. it bends around anything in the way. And when we make a telescope, and we'll look at this a little bit more next time, but when we make a telescope, if you're looking straight down the tube of the telescope, there's usually a mirror down at the bottom. And there's usually another little mirror up here to focus the light back. So there's a big mirror at the bottom, a little mirror up here. Well, we don't have the science to keep that little mirror just suspended there. right? Do we, just want it? So we don't want it just there. We don't want to block anything. So you actually have to attach that mirror to the sides, just to hold it in place. You've got to put something there to hold it in place. And if you've ever looked at, we looked at those images of some of the images of the stars that we see, we've shown you on the pictures of the days. They're not just dots, right? They look like that. You're seeing, you're seeing the diffraction of the light around this little bits, and you're getting that. You're getting that. You're getting that extra image there. It's kind of refocusing, readjusting the light. So you're actually seeing the te- You're seeing that in the telescope. Now we'll talk about that a little bit more. Next chapter, we go into telescopes in a lot more detail. But that's just one better example of diffraction that actually applies. And we've seen some pictures like this. You'll see that in all the pictures I show of stars taken with any kind of telescope like this, and there's not many telescopes left that don't have a mirror of some kind. A few really old ones we'll talk about, but any of the new big modern telescopes are of this kind of design and have a second mirror there someplace to help refocus the light. The other thing we have, we had diffraction, we have interference. Waves can add together or can subtract. If you add two waves together, they can become stronger. So if you have two waves coming together, traveling the same direction at the same time, they amplify, they add together and become much stronger wave. If you have two waves just opposite each other, as the two pictures shown here, we have one wave going up when the other is going down. You don't get these two waves. You don't see it one wave up in, you know, in the water. You're not going to see one wave up and one wave down, right? You're only going to see the combination. And what's left over, if you add these two together, is a much smaller wave. Now, one thing you get to see that example I'll give is if you go to the water park, right? They do those wave pools. I know my four year old loves those. So you go to the wave pool, they have all the wave, but if you're going, depending on where you are in that pool, you have some very big waves on one edge that, you know, bowl you completely over. And I usually try to take her out to the section where everything's canceling and it's just littler waves coming in, in the middle. That's the same thing. I mean, The waves are being produced are just as big at the front. It's just where they're adding together. Some places, the waves on each side are adding together constructively and becoming twice as big. So you get those monster waves. Some places, they're destructively, and they're not completely gone, but they're much, much lower. And you notice that if you walk around through a wave pool, you can see that there's some areas where there's lots of waves, and some where there's hardly anything. And that's the same kind of thing, that's interference. And you can get the same thing with light waves. You can get light waves to cancel. If you have light waves, the same light wave coming through, you can either add or subtract those as well. As the light waves from different sources come in. So you can actually get areas where there's no light, and you can actually get areas where there's more light. All right, let me see. Okay, we finished it. Let me finish up here, and then we'll stop. Should pretty much finish up this section, pretty much because I've already told you all this already. Water waves, sound waves. We need to travel in something. You know, there's no water, there's no water wave. If there's no air, we take all the air out of this room, we all suffocate. But you still wouldn't hear me talking. You know, I could be sitting here talking, but you know, you're just gonna see my see my lips move you're not going to actually hear anything coming out, because there's no medium for them which to travel. Electromagnetic waves are different. Electromagnetic waves do not need a medium. And this goes into a little more details of how they're formed by the electric field and the magnetic field. You don't need to worry about the details of this. They're created by accelerating charged particles. That's mainly what I'm looking, looking at. So again, the big thing is the electromagnetic waves can travel through space. Again, very fortunate. We can actually see the stars. We can actually get energy from the sun. If the electromagnetic waves had to have a medium, then there'd either have to be some medium permeating space, what's even 100 years, 100, 150 years ago was thought, that there might be this ether that is out in space that, to allow the waves to travel, to allow light to get to us. Because every other wave we were familiar with needed to travel in something. We didn't have this physical understanding of how things worked. So I am going to finish up there, because I'm pretty sure the next one, yeah, I think the next one's going to go on. And we'll pick up the rest of this. So we're going to do a lab as a spectroscopy lab. You've got a 10 minute break up. So we gotta, one guy's going to come in and help me set it up. So we're going to get that set up and do that in about 10 minutes. So you've got a 10 minute break in here. And then I'll come back and I'll give you a quick introduction as to what you're going to see and what you should see in it and then we'll do that do that lab so take your break now and then we'll